You're listening to the Sports Therapy Association podcast, putting evidence back into soft tissue therapy. Eight o'clock, hey, people. Welcome to the Sports Therapy Association podcast. Um, how are you? Um, it's Sleep Awareness Month still, um, which I've been loving. And I must start off by thanking people who have been taking the time to email in um, to me and, um, and putting stuff on social media and just sharing it. It seems to be really popular because um, also because it's affecting you guys. I was just talking previously with my guest. It's it's obviously been a month where it's helping you guys as individuals to become better therapists by just being more alert and learning more and stuff, um, which is great. Um, so yeah, I appreciate all the feedback um, which we received today, and it's going to continue. We've got another two, which I'm really really excited about. Uh, before I bring up tonight's guest, um, I just want to give a huge thanks to um, Dr. Olivia Walsh. Um, from last week, where it was all about sleep wearables, um, quite a few interesting conversations going on across um, social media um, based on what uh, Dr. Olivia Walsh had to say uh, last week. Let's bring up a photo there. So there she is. Um, yeah, it was good. People, it was interesting. Some people were a little bit taken back that the data that was being shown to do with there. Uh, you've got this amount of percentage of REM sleep and this amount of deep sleep and so on. Might You might not really want to pay too much attention to that especially if it's kind of saying something which goes against how you feel. Um, but um, Olivia did a great job in talking about what you can use wearables for and where to kind of uh, place your efforts if you are using them. Um, so, yeah, really worth looking at. If you do want to catch up with it, then simply um, go to your favorite podcast app, type in the Sports Therapy Association, it'll come up. And also this is going out to Run Chat Live. It's so important. I've decided to rekindle the fires of Run Chat Live podcast after a couple of years. Um, and um, I'm uploading to that as well, because obviously it's important, not just to therapists, but to runners as well, which is obviously my passion. Um, so yeah, you can find it on both of those podcasts. Or if you want to watch the video, which I always recommend, um, especially with Olivia last week, who was so expressive and passionate um, it was, it's worth watching it. Um, what a maths teacher. Um, maths is a passion. And if you want to wish on what your maths teacher was like and how they could have interested you in class, then just watch a few minutes of Olivia and, and there's your blueprint for a great maths teacher. So there you go. Um, you can watch that on YouTube if you want to on the Sports Derby Association YouTube channel. So people are coming in the room. It is recorded live. Um, so if you do want to join us live, it's eight o'clock at the moment. It's GMT plus one must remember i always say i must remember to ask my guest about this controversy around should we have a plus one should the hours be shifting around just because summer's come um so mind me someone if i forget about it um, to ask about that and um, Catherine rhyme has joined us um hi Catherine. if you do decide to join us live then i can basically bring your questions up on the screen you can't see that now if you listen to podcasts but if you watch the youtube you'll see so it's a great way to meet other like-minded therapists if you're in the uk then it's a great way to network there's bound to be people in your area the sports therapy association reps um generally come and hang out here so it's a great way to network and, and get some support sabrina monaghan has joined us as well hi sabrina hope you're well becky carroll is in here as well evening all says um becky i missed last week shame on you becky but don't worry um so i must catch up make sure you tell me when you have thanks becky good to see you here um Catherine Rhyme as well is apologies always come in this is how we roll in the sta we get the apologies out of the way first of all um, Catherine says sorry i missed last week i ironically was really tired well that's okay i can't force you to stay up and watch this if you're tired we that's what we're talking about uh, just have a little thing about why you were tired Catherine. okay so a little thing about why 
Um, so yeah, but thank you for joining us tonight, Catherine. And other people are flooding as well now. So thank you very much for joining us live. Like I say, if you do want to join us live, then it's eight o'clock at GMT plus one, which is what time it is in the UK. Um, so tonight we're going to be talking about injury and performance. So really relevant to the Sports Therapy Association listeners. As soft tissue therapists, you're going to get people obviously coming in to you who, um, if they are recreational athletes of whatever level, they're going to be either coming to you with an injury problem or they're going to be looking to improve their performance. And that's what our guest, Dr. Jonathan Charis, specializes in. And he's going to be um, discussing that tonight. Um, and then next week, um, Dr. Amy Bender um, from uh, Cerebra, the director of clinical sleep there, is going to be with us at the same time. That's going to be really exciting for me because Amy is going to be giving the results to the five-week in-home polysomnogram um, uh, study that I did from the comfort of my own room with all the EEG signals being measured and rapid eye movement and muscular difference between various parts of my skull and muscles. Um, so that's going to be really exciting and talking about um, uh, the state of... Um, a wearable which is actually taking brainwaves so that's going to be amy next week so um i think that's everything i need checking my crib sheet I haven't missed anything on uh, no not at all if you are what listening to the podcast then please 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 always say this every week do me a favor and just leave a rating subscribe um leave some nice stars there it just helps the information from our fantastic guests get out to more people which is what this is all about no one's getting any money out of this it's all just about spreading the good word and kind of helping everyone out there so if you could leave a review and a, and, and a star five would be nicest then that really just helps the podcast appear google that's, that's what it's all about so please do that it takes no time at all if you've got an iphone if you're on android then understand you're probably going to have to go to your garden and say a spell and run around in a circle or something it's really tricky but with an iphone it takes two seconds okay so please go and do that Right, I've left him um, alone down in the lobby for long enough now. So um, uh, if you'd like to get comfortable and get your notepads out, I shall bring up Dr. Jonathan Charest. You're listening to the Sports Therapy Association podcast, putting evidence back into soft tissue therapy. Hey, Jonathan, how are you doing? I'm good. Yourself, Matt? Really good. Very excited um i'm already animated by spending having the pleasure of spending five ten minutes with you before we've gone live so thank you so much for joining us where are you talking from today uh, i'm in uh calgary at the uh, center for sleep and human performance this is in uh, canada for those who doesn't know so i'm uh, across the that little pond of yours here <laughs> yeah the lovely little pond which is actually looking quite nice now actually we've had some great weather we've got spring is well underway here well down in the south of the uk where i am so yeah, so thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Um, you come very much recommended by everyone we've spoken to so far. In fact, you're working and have got stuff going on with both Jesse Cook and Dr. Walsh as well, haven't you? You've got some stuff going on and coming out soon. Uh, yeah, we have a uh, manuscript uh, that we are working on uh, for uh, the uh, NBA, so the National Basketball Association. We have one also on the NHL, the National Hockey League here uh, in Canada and the United States. And we also have some work on uh, student athletes. We have some work also on marathoners. So we have uh, quite a lot going on, actually, with uh, Jesse and the group. Jesse and the group. There's, um, there's, there's quite a lot going on 
I would recommend if anyone likes to geek out, then just type in any of the names of my guests and you'll find an awful lot of fantastic uh, papers. A lot of them, which it just says, if you want the full text and contact the author, some of them are behind a bit of a paywall, but there's always ways um, to get to see these, if you know, the right people. But um, yeah, so for example, our guest tonight, Dr. Jonathan Charis, there's, I think there's 20, over 20 different um, articles online. Um, let me bring these up on full screen so you have a little look. And um, this was one with Amy from last week and also um, Celian Bastian um, and C. Samuels. So that was a paper on um, Canadian national team speed skaters. I've just taken a selection of three here. Um, there was one with uh, Dr. Mita Singh, who nearly, nearly we had on the show. But um, unfortunately, Dr. Singh had a, uh, a another engagement which suddenly came up in Chicago. Very sought after speaker as well. So there's another paper there, which I'd recommend you guys have a look at with Jonathan Cherist, Stephen Bird and Michael Workings. And then more recently, um, only last year, I think it was with Michael Granner, whose name's come up um, as well as we were talking last week on wearables and with Jesse about an introduction to sleep. So lots and lots of papers up there um, for the geeks of you who like to have a look at the research, which is always recommended recommended then um yeah lots up there is does that mean things are getting better jonathan the amount of papers that have come out are things changing now in this decade are we getting better information and more answers to to the relationship between sleep and sports performance i think we are being exposed to more information so <clears throat> i think nowadays uh, athletes and uh, ist and support group uh, are taking care now more and more of sleep as they did recognize how of an important factor it plays into the mental health, the mental well-being, the recovery, but also ultimately the performance of everyone. So I think this is now on the right direction and we are facing now the uh, good problem of discerning what is a good information and what is not a good information because of how many articles we are getting now. I noticed recently, actually, I mean, I, I'm in my bubble on Twitter, so I've been now a month just looking at everything. I've got my sleep people list, my sleep peeps. And so, but I noticed Dr. Singh, for example, was very happy about some success she was having with, I can't remember the name of the, uh, um, the basketball team now. Where is she? Who did she work uh, with? She's working with the uh, Pelicans of uh, New Orleans. There you go. So it must be very exciting when you are getting involved now, concentrating on athletes' performance with this information you're, you're finding in studies um, and see actually the proofs in the put that's actually making a difference. Well, that's what we like to see is when we enter and start working with a team and athletes, we have a plan of action. And ultimately, if we are part of the improvement of one or two percent, this is how you actually improve an entire team. You will not make the difference of 50% of the team, but at this level, at this eliteness level, one or 2% is what is needed and required to make the difference between a final and missing the final and making the playoff and not making the playoff. And I think this is what sleep brings on the table is that one or 2% edge compared to the other teams and athletes. What's the history like in, in elite sport? You've had the you've had the pleasure, I'm sure, and the challenge of working with elite athletes. How long have have teams been actually drawing on the services of, of sleep professionals to help? Uh, well, some some have been working with sleep coaches and sleep specialists for quite some time. Uh, just 
of course, I'm, I'm, I'm biased. I'm the sleep guy here. So I truly think that a, a sleep specialist, a sleep clinician should be on board for the entire year with a professional team. The way they are currently using it is uh, at the beginning of the year for a sleep presentation, quick evaluation, and then off they go. Uh, sleep, as you all know, is a very dynamic process. So and it does have a lot of inter-individualities, meaning that in a team, you may have uh, rookies, freshmen, uh, so they're 20, 21 years old, and you will also have your veteran, which will be, let's call them 20, uh, 30 and 32 years old. You will not assess the sleep the same way for these athletes, but they are within the same team. So throughout the year, your veteran guy may have some difficulties with a kid at home. Uh, which the 21-year-old probably will not have. The 21-year-old may have more difficulty with a uh, night lifestyle, for example. Mm -hmm. And these are different approaches that a sleep clinician can make. And therefore, at the end of the day, you may make a difference, but you need to come with a individualized plan of action within the team, not a plan that will cover the entire team. This is a recipe for failure. So amongst the elites, because there is this, I work with runners, for example. So a lot of, of club runners will look at what the elites are doing and kind of mimic it and copy it. So amongst the elites, is there quite good education when it comes to sleep hygiene? Or do you find that the athletes themselves are still fairly oblivious or there's a lot of misconceptions still? Uh, in terms of sleep hygiene, I would say that uh, runners, so a long distance runner, are typically quite uh, well aware of the, what a good sleep hygiene is. However, a good sleep hygiene does not necessarily mean you're not struggling with sleep. Uh, so a, a good night of sleep will mean that you are waking up refreshed. Ultimately, that's what you're looking at. If you're sleeping eight hours because of your good sleep hygiene, but you wake up on refresh, what good does it do sleeping eight hours? Ultimately, it does nothing. You're wasting your time. So when we approach athletes, the first question is, how do you feel in the morning, typically? Well, you know, for three days of a week, I'm good, and the rest, it's so on and so forth. Okay, so half of the time, basically, you're struggling. So let's check why. And if we only look at sleep hygiene, we will not find anything, except uh, nowadays we have the difficulty of uh, putting the phone away, putting the screen down. But this is a very easy, uh, easy fix. And then the, the most difficult and challenging fix is the culture behind the sport. So when you talk about long distance runner, what do you mostly find on the weekend? It's their long run, their long, easy run, which is typically due or done early in the morning. So they have a perfect opportunity to actually bank their sleep on the weekend. But because of the culture of long run being done in the morning, because there's less people, uh, it's uh, less hot, uh, less sunny, uh, you can name all the excuses in the book. They are uh, trading hour of sleep to actually increase their mileage. And then this will accumulate throughout weeks, month, year. Now, ultimately, they're crashing and they're wondering why. Because they had let that sleep debt cripple on them slowly but surely. So in other words, then, athletes, even at high levels, are believing that it's better to get that, to sacrifice sleep to get that good training session in rather than adjust their training session to keep the sleep they're doing it the wrong way around it's always a balanced way of approaching this so as a sleep clinician you don't want to throw away the entire culture of their sport and the entire routine the best course of action is picking one battle at a time so 
you're looking at the total sleep time and okay so based on what we're seeing i i believe you're missing a couple of hours here and there uh, in order to not change anything can we just incorporate napping in your schedule in your daily schedule weekly schedule and then we start there ultimately are we winning are we improving your quality of life? Are we improving the quality, the quantity of mileage and the quality of your mileage? Are we improving the restful sensation? If the athletes come back and say, well, you know, I'm better, but I'm not quite there yet. I'm making that, I'm missing that it factor. Well, then we may get on the cultural sports side of, okay, so wh- which morning? So let's say you have three, three early morning training. Can we address one? I'm not saying we should never train in the morning, but can we use one to our advantage to make sure that your early morning training do not become a burden for your recovery and ultimately your performance? That's very interesting. Yes, that's 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 advice we've seen a few times from professionals like yourself is you mustn't go in there gung-ho telling the athlete how they're doing everything wrong and they need to be doing this because it could lead to disaster. So, it's, yeah, picking one little thing you could tweak at a time. Um, to get a positive outcome. That's very interesting. Um, questions are coming up. I'm going to address this one straight away. Check out me keeping an eye on the questions already. We're only 10 minutes in. But Becky, I remember you mentioning this a few times. So I'm going to put this to um, Jonathan now. I'll bring it up on the screen and read it out for people who are listening. Um, Becky says, good point. I've always been a good sleeper. When I struggled with a deficiency in B12, I would have eight hours sleep and routinely wake up feeling like I'd only had two hours sleep. Horrid. Okay, so there we go. Proof in the pud. Eight hours, but not helping. No, that's exactly the point. So when when you, you enter uh, the room with athletes, a team or a individual athlete or coaches, you don't want to bring on the table and be in and start the discussion being confrontational. You're asking what is the problem and here's what the theory says. And now let's try to apply that theory on your reality setting. How can we make these fine tuning changes? So for example, the B12 deficiency. I don't have the material to actually test everyone B12 <laughs> on the go in the clinic, but it's always something that we need to keep in the back of our head as, well, I'm the sleep specialist. I think I'm doing a great job, but on the nutritional side, could we benefit from a dietitian? Absolutely. So that would be the responsibility of the sleep clinician to stay within their line, their lane and say, well, my sleep is not according to the standard of that athlete, but we're not getting quite there yet. I believe there may be some deficiency in uh, some nutrient. Then I, we need to work a, from a, a multidisciplinary uh, approach now. The sleep guy cannot do it all, unfortunately. I wish, but I don't. <laughs> <laughs> um, so from listening to you there, it's, it's obviously you can't attend to everybody one by one and do specific tests, but it sounds like, and I know there is a bit of a leading question, but there needs to be some form of questionnaire or kind of screening initially, doesn't it, with certain questions down. This can be done with elite athletes, maybe easier, but with people coming into clinic, especially if they're suffering from pain or coming in saying they're plateauing, they're not performing well anymore, they think they just need a massage to sort it out. At that point, by putting a few questions about sleep on on um, the kind of park you, which we're always doing with a new client, is it possible then maybe to give them a sleep-specific questionnaire which, which could help identify other things which are worth looking into and maybe referring them to a specialist? Well, definitely. So for elite athletes, 
there is that questionnaire, the uh, athlete sleep, uh, the athlete sleep screening questionnaire ASSQ that's been developed in uh, 2016 and been validated uh, by your next, uh, your next uh, visitor, uh, Dr. Amy Bender. Uh, this is the only sleep questionnaire for athletes. So with that uh, questionnaire, you can have a good sense on uh, who should be referred where and who should not be referred. So the idea with referral is to make sure that we do not overburden the system. And then ultimately with uh, the population that is not an elite athlete, depending on what you're looking, there's questionnaire that will address insomnia, uh, such as the uh, insomnia severity index. Uh, you have uh, sleepiness that can be assessed with different questionnaire. There's a sleep quality. But ultimately, even if you have these questionnaire with the total score, there's nothing like a clinician and the professional asking, how do you do? How do you feel in the morning? And patient and client are very quick on to complaining about sleep and how refresh or unrefresh they are. And then that opens you the door to go a little bit deeper. And with that, the referral system can be done quite wide. I should not say easily because it should have, <laughs> everyone would do it. But every, every uh, specialist should assess pain, nutrition, sleep, and physical activity, in my opinion. And from there, see where we should refer them. Great advice. So that's been a constant theme um, on the show in the last kind of 96 episodes of, yeah, focusing on the subjective, giving enough, even if, I mean, again, it's so interesting. So I had this with a, with a younger therapist I was chatting to the other week is if somebody comes in and they're, and they're, they're expecting an hour massage, 60 minutes, and you start going off on all these screening protocols and suddenly 20 minutes to go, you say, right, we better do a bit of massage. That person's probably not going to come back. So it's really important not to get too caught up and to look at the individual in front of you and, and check expectation, explain to them, look, I'd like to go down this a little bit more. Should we do it now or should we book it another week? But there is an awful lot we need to be including in the subjective over a period of time, which probably is being missed out, isn't there? Oh, definitely. So I think a good clinician and a good uh, health professional is the key factor. And one of the key factor is to pay attention to the uh, variable that matters. And what these questionnaire or these trackers will help you do is highlight these uh, factor. Ultimately, that leaves you with the last decision of do I pay attention to it or not? So you do not rely entirely on them. You do re rely on your clinical judgment. So for every uh, screening tool you may use, uh, the way we work here is we send our questionnaire before the appointment. So we don't lose any time of their appointment of 30 minutes, 45 minutes, one hour to actually go on the questionnaire with them. It's their homework. And then that also tells you how dedicated they are to actually improve themselves. And that tells you a lot about the patient or client you have in front of you. So ultimately what you want is pay attention to the real issue. And sometimes with too much data, you may get, you may get caught up in the weeds and you're not helping your patient. Yeah, yeah. Very good, very good advice. Yeah, that's one thing that's probably come out of COVID-19 is the use of pre-consultation screens and questionnaires and even virtual consultations if the person wants to see you, have a little chat beforehand and to get stuff out. So I'm interested people who have joined us live, 
especially people who have been tracking us now for the last kind of nearly 100 episodes we've been telling you an awful lot of questions you need to be asking in the subjective whether it's to do with female pelvic health or male pelvic health or rheumatology or hypermobility um, and now we're putting on sleep as well and next month we're putting on nutrition so it how do you manage to fit this all in are you struggling do you find that or do you succeed in breaking it down over the period of a few consultations i remember i can't remember who it was now it might have been derek griffin or somebody who's who kind of reminded us that subjective needs to happen every single session it's not a case of doing this massive subjective when you meet a new client and that's the last time you ask them any questions and then the rest are just kind of treatments a certain amount of questioning and checking up needs to happen um it's you, you just got to work out how long in each session but yeah so let me know if you are struggling at all if you think there's just too much information or maybe you've got a good way of doing it like sending out pre-questionnaires so jonathan what i'm interested in is what about i mean you've like i say you've, you've worked with so many athletes um up to elite level is there any evidence that um athletes suffer with more potential sleep conditions than non-athletes um or or not does it is it not that easy to say well, I, I would say, you know, that uh, we could argue that elite athletes and student athletes have uh, more uh, potential excuses to suffer from uh, poor sleep. Having said that, the data is not quite clear on who's suffering more for sleep deprivation, restriction or sleep issues. What we can say, though, is when I'm looking at a student or a student athlete, if I'm uh, faced with insomnia, most, most probably that the insomnia complaint will arise from different factor. So I think understanding the factor or the issue uh, at the roots of the sleep problem is massively important. So understanding that if you're faced with a student athlete that is struggling because of a pre-anxiety competition, whereas your student may be just, uh, maybe just, maybe facing a social anxiety. Yeah, you will not approach that sleep uh, that sleep issue the same way. So to me, it's not who suffers more, who suffers less. The, the suffering is suffering. And everyone deserves uh, the same health, the same quality of care. And it's uh, on our side to actually, well, you're suffering from insomnia, you're suffering from sleep apnea or restless leg syndrome. Uh, you can name them all as sleep issues. How do we address them in your own reality setting? To me, sleep is one of the most, if not the most, individualized approach that should be taken care of. Everyone sleep, but everyone sleep differently, and they all have different sleep requirements. Mm, very interesting. So as always, just look at the individual in front of you and don't presume anything. But you did mention there, for example, stress and anxiety because of pre-competition. That's something, a sporting issue, which an athlete's going to suffer which is kind of different than if they're not in that working in that world. Is there any other things which we need to kind of look out for? So that's that's a massive one in itself, actually, the anxiety. And that's going to change, obviously, depending on how close competitions are. So straight away, when you're talking to the patient, you need to know their plan of when they're racing, what's coming up and how sleep could be changing, depending on how their training sessions are changing as well. Well, definitely. That's the reason I said at the beginning uh, that to me, uh, sleep clinicians should be included in the team from day one to the last day. Because if my athlete is good at pre-camp or in the preseason, doesn't mean he will be good when it, uh, he is in the middle of the season or nearing the playoff. This is when we need to act. There's a lot of work being uh, done previously, but on that very acute phase, how can you make sure that 
it does not fail or drown under the pressure and then have these sleep problem, not eating problem, maybe an injury, a lack of focus. And now he is uh, just uh, sacrificing his uh, entire season because we're not paying attention on the long run. So to me, when it goes for anxiety, I want to know how my athlete are at the beginning of a season and are they doing and coping when it does truly matter which is qualify uh, qualification for the olympic games world championship uh, playoff uh, whatever it may be i want to know how they cope if they have difficulty at that precise moment of their season then we can prepare in advance i prefer to be proactive than reactive if i'm reactive is because i miss some red flag before end proactive rather than reactive nice great advice um so yeah there's something out there for anybody who's working with an athlete if you know that i mean take the classic 16-week marathon preparation or something the sleep needs are going to change on a, on a weekly as well as maybe monthly depending on what type of training they're doing and when they're intensifying when they're tapering off so yeah it's it's a journey isn't it which you've got to stick with them the whole time and and, and see how things are going and then that person's own personal life is going to change as well during those 16 weeks so it's seeing what's happening and yeah very interesting which makes me wonder working with somebody you can ask them these questions how about wearables i mean there's a lot of information that dr olivia walsh gave us last week but what's your experience with recommending that the athlete uses a wearable to track these things to see when they do need some kind of intervention but when we first start with wearables the uh so i of course dr walsh probably explained it in a way better way than i will uh so we got to make sure that they use it for the right purposes uh first i'm asking them we will continue uh with your wearable but you will rate your refreshness uh subjectivity before even laying eyes on your wearable every single morning. And then we can compare. And after that, what I want from the wearables is a accountability tool. So if you're okay with wearing the wearables, then you should be okay with me looking at your data. So here's our, my recommendation. You should be sleeping, let's say, uh, around 11, 11.30 till eight in the morning. And with that, we know that typically you feel refreshed, regardless of your wearables. But now in two weeks, I'll see you again and I want to see the download of these wearables. And oh, what happened on that day? You were in bed at 10, which is not better than 11, even though it's earlier. Earlier does not mean better. And here you're in bed at one. So to me, the wearable with athletes is a accountability uh, device. Of course, there's always the privacy issue. So we always make sure that the athlete is a-okay with us watching over his data. So to me, that's how more of a, I use it. Uh, on the other end, we have a lot of athletes saying, well, I need more uh, stage three sleep, that, that deep sleep or that REM sleep. Again, how someone can improve or increase deep sleep and REM sleep, there's only one known uh, way of doing that and is uh, sleep depriving someone, which we don't do in the, <laughs> in the world uh, of athletes. So having said that, then it's the educational part that is also important. What are you doing with your data and how is that gathered is massively important to understand so we can use it to our advantage so they do not become a distraction. That's the only thing that matters to me that we need to make sure they are not a distraction and that we use the data to our advantage. That's very interesting. And that, yeah, definitely, as like you said, that reflects the information given by um, Dr. Walsh last week that, it, yeah, 
you've got to almost screen your individual in front of you to check whether it could whether they are susceptible to kind of like the anxiety and the orthosomnia and kind of relying too much on it. So there's education before, like you say, they even let them look at the data. Oh, um, definitely. Imagine yeah. you imagine you wake up and you're all fresh and you're good and you're ready to take on the day. You look at your watch. Oh, recovery score is 67. What the hell? <laughs> My day is done. And you have some athletes because the recovery score is below threshold. They will say, well, Crappy day, crappy night, so I should not do A, B, C, and D. If, if we had a uh, heart rate uh, specialist here, maybe it would say uh, differently. But I would say, well, if you feel good, you know better than a mat mathematical algorithm. Mm. As last time I checked, most athletes that are truthful and honest under, uh, under state, they know when to pull the trigger for a big, massive training. And they know when to actually lift the foot from the pedal. If you rely entirely on your recovery score from your watch, then you're just completely dependent on what this will do to you. Well, every time I'm below 85, I should not train uh, in zone uh, three. Uh, or every time I'm in, uh, above 85, I will always go in zone three. I mean, there is not a, this is not how it works. So it's a lot of subjectivity. Know your range of sleep, and this just be mindful of what it means. Interesting, yeah. Uh, it's similar, isn't it, to the data given working in your heart rate zones? And we know that a lot of people it just doesn't tally, it doesn't work. You're being told not to run so fast or to run quicker, and it's like, well, I feel like I'm in my right zone now. So, yeah, interesting comparison. I want to go back to something you said, which um, I think is interesting. Earlier is not better. So I, first of all, I love the accountability. When I did my five week study with Cerebra, that's the one thing which I took away. And it was nice because as opposed to giving out training programs and recommendations and strength kind of things, which you're trying to get the athlete to, to adhere to, I was realizing how powerful having to fill out a questionnaire every evening and saying whether I drank coffee, um, you know, all the other things. I mean, you mentioned so much, it could be applicable to an individual like marijuana, like have you eaten before bed? Um, have you been doing any work? Were you st all these questions and just that questionnaire doing it every night suddenly was like Big Brother, you know, which improved my <laughs> it was though, wasn't it? We need it, you know. And I think particularly athletes, they like that structure. And it's yeah, it spoke, it spoke, it was really, really useful. It made me realize how useful accountability can, can be. But yeah, you mentioned earlier is not better. So can you expand on that? Why is it not better if you manage one day to go to bed at half nine? Do it, no? Uh, well, so first thing first. I mentioned this to all my athletes, the best hour of sleep are not before midnight. This needs to be understood from the get-go. So a nine to five, a 10 to six, a 11 to seven, midnight to eight sleeper, to me, they're all the same. As long as these eight hour window represent the type of sleeper you are. And then of course you look at the uh, social uh, responsibility. So can you sleep till 8 a.m. in the morning? because of school, work, commute to work, so on and so forth. So let's take the example of an elite athlete that has the flexibility of his or her schedule entirely. Because of that social pressure we put amongst everyone that the early bird gets the worm and so on and so forth, that the best hours sleep are before midnight and that since you're uh, three feet high, we always told you to go to bed at a decent hour. What does that even mean, a decent hour? So you have the early birds, you have night owl, you have in-between type of sleeper. 
your early birds will be those who will be in bed around nine-ish, ten-ish, and they will wake up around six. You have your night owls on the other hand that should be in bed around midnight one and wake up around eight, nine. So if you take that night owl and you put that social conceptualization of sleep on him that you should be in bed at 10, the problem with this is that at 10, he may be tired, but remember, this gets tired. This gets sleepy. If your head is not sleepy, if you're not in a state where you can initiate sleep, you will be in bed, you will toss and turn, and you will stare at your ceiling, and you'll get frustrated, and your clock watch. Eventually, you will fall asleep probably around midnight, which is the time you should be in bed in the first place. So all you're doing is extending time in bed, but you're not increasing your sleep. So that's why earlier does not always mean better. And always compare sleep with food, says the French guy. It's food, whether or not I am hungry. If you put cheese in front of me, I will eat it because I do eat. Whether or not I'm sleepy will dictate if I initiate sleep. Let's say it's 1.36 in the afternoon here. Let's say after the podcast, I am drained and I want to take a nap. Maybe I will, depending on how sleepy I am. I cannot decide to sleep like this because I don't do it. It's something that happens to us. So knowing the type of sleeper you are is crucial and fundamental to actually decide a plan of action as to when will be your boundaries for your window to sleep. So that's why earlier does not always mean better. Fantastic. There's, um, well, that's, that's chucked about four or five questions into my mind, which I'm going to have to try and keep there. There's so much in there. So in an ideal world, potentially then, um, coaches um, and trainers would know what type of person you are. We're kind of talking about chronotypes here, aren't we? And adjust what time your morning training is, depending on if you are a later kind of sleep or something. In reality, that's probably not going to happen, depending on the sport which you especially if it's a team sport or something. So I want to ask you, therefore, about, is that when you need to start playing around with factors? You can't change your chronotype. You can start influencing the whole circadian rhythm, can't you, by playing around with external factors to make it easier to get to sleep at 10? Yeah, definitely. And as I mentioned pre uh, previously, so let's work with an obvious sport, swimmers. So I'm working with student athletes or university team. Uh, one of the first thing the coach told me, do not tell them that early morning is detrimental for them because it is what it is with swimming. Mm. Entirely true. If I come with my big boots in his office and say, well, my big boot doctor sleep says no training in the morning. Well, he's going to slam the door in my face next time. So I'm not helping my cause of sleep and I'm not helping any student athletes. So the idea is bringing the theory. Look, in theory, this is what should be done. Now, because of pool, accessibility is only available to you guys in the morning. What is a realistic change that will not impair your performance, but will improve their sleeping habit? So if we can change only one morning, that's already one morning that they don't have to wake up at 5 a.m., that they can ultimately wake up at 7 or 8. That's two or three hours additionally that you put in your sleep bank. So that's how we would actually do it. Then following that, now we have our optimal schedule that is realistic from their perspective and the availability of the pool. Then we can do a quick uh, screening of who's an early bird, who's a night owl, who's an in-between, and then you may focus on your night owl. And look, you have these type of early morning training. 
how can we shift you just slightly earlier for those nights? No, I'm not going to make you a 10 o'clock sleeper. Let's be, again, realistic. But if I can transfer you or shift you from a midnight to an 11, 11, 15, that's 60 to 45 minute additional sleep that you will gain. And that is reducing the burden instead of looking for the perfect picture, which is unrealistic. You will not obtain it and you will be frustrated by it. So making realistic expectation in order to improve performance is also very important. The other thing which I thought of as we're talking about, I think it was, I can't think it was Mike James, um, the endurance physio, could be an Angela Jackson. There was a conversation on Twitter where I think it was Mike James was saying he works with swimmers, young swimmers, um, young teenagers who are, have to be in the pool at like five in the morning, you know, to get their session in. Because the other thing which we haven't mentioned yet, I'd like to expand on, we know that the circadian rhythm can shift depending on age as well. And ironically, teenagers, are more likely to become night owls for that period of time. So that's a problem in itself, isn't it? We're trying to get athletes who could be incredible up in a time where for us would be like getting up at two in the morning to do a session. How has there ever any successful athletes created it? Because that's the way I guess young teenage athletes always have and probably always will. How do you get around that? Yeah, well, how you get around that? So that's the mystery of sports. It just tells you how adaptable a human being can be uh, and how phenomenal our brain is. Uh, is that an optimal approach? Definitely not. Uh, but you are entirely under that when you say that teenagers are shifting towards an hour preference. Uh, so when your teenage boy or teenage girl wake up groggy in the morning and always complain in the morning, they're not trying to... Uh, quote unquote, piss you off on purpose. They're just completely misaligned with their circadian rhythm. So a 16 uh, year old boy or girl that wake up at 6 a.m., it's like you waking up at 4 a.m. You will probably be moody also. And then you put them in, in cold water at five. <laughs> and so that's may not, that may not be the best uh, thing to do. But again, it's pool accessibility. Can we change that? If not, one of the things we work a lot with is these blue blockers. Uh, we work with that to block blue light in the evening, especially that when you talk about teenager, you talk about students. And nowadays with COVID, everything is on a screen. There is no paper anymore. Uh, so they spend an atrocious number of hours behind the screen reading uh, and studying, which may delay their bedtime. And then we wake up earlier and earlier for training. So we have all the ingredients for a perfect storm here. So the idea is, again, coming back, looking at what do we have in front of us, boys, girl, type of sport, what is the accessibility to the pool, to the field, to the ice, to the track, and then we come up with a uh, plan to reduce that burden of uh, realistic expectation. There has been some studies, I believe, I've, I've looked at the abstracts anyway, suggesting that those who do excel in elite sport maybe naturally have an early morning kind of chronotype or where they are awake and alert to be able to do those training sessions so maybe it's kind of a filtering system where the only kids who do survive are the ones who can manage to you know operate that early in the morning and maybe we're missing out on talent by not kind of widening the, the net a little bit well to be uh, obviously i think we are missing out on some talent but there's one research and i think it's by a uh, surgeon sergeant and allison and lastella back in uh, Australia, uh, they, uh, I have to uh, look this up again, 
what they did is they look at type of sports, so triathlon, swimmer, rugby, and so on and so forth. And what they uncovered is unconsciously we pick a type of sport that aligns with our chronotype. Mm-hmm. So I may have tried swimming uh, at, a early, at a very early age, but I'm not an early bird. Probably I would have quit that sport and pick my soccer game or my hockey I'm from Canada after all. So I would have stick with hockey, which is more of a late night, late evening type of sport. So that filtering is done naturally for some athlete. Does that mean that every night owl will never be a good swimmer? No, it means that if you look at the number, you are more likely to like and love swimming if you're a nerdy bird. Does that mean you will be a better athlete? I mean, the data, we don't have the data to actually support that. I would assume so, but again, we don't have any evidence-based uh, research to, to support that. Very interesting. There's, um, I suppose it gives us another tool. One of the most difficult things for therapists, and I'm sure if you're listening uh, live, then you can join in with this, is when we do get the parent and the child athlete coming in, and the parent's really excited because their child athlete's going to be so successful and they love it, and they're if we can identify that this child is struggling because of the fact that their biological clock is telling them not you know to be tired until about maybe nine in the morning then maybe with some education we can help changing the lighting in the evening like you said the glasses and 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 help both the parents who are frustrated because little timmy or joan or whatever her name is is struggling compared to the other kids so it's quite a, a well a very useful tool isn't it to help families who are struggling maybe because of sleep issues. Oh yeah, and, and the education to me is the biggest portion. Uh, 85% of your athlete will only require education and reassurance. So the sleep problem is not as an epidemic of what we are reading. There's an overestimation of poor sleep out there. Uh, having said that, a, a little education to the, to the student athletes, to the little kid, and to the parents. So every time I work with student athletes that are aged between 13 and 17, every discussion I have or presentation I may do, I always invite the parents because ultimately little Timmy, as you mentioned, live under the roof of mom and dad. If little Timmy says we need to change every light from white to yellow, well, dad's gonna say, well, who told you that? (laughs) That's the reason I want parents to also come to these uh, information sessions. And the, the, big, the nail I armor the most is the one of chronotype. Your kid is not being a uh, confrontational with you when you told him to go to bed at 10. He's just literally not tired. There's a way to shift him earlier. But do not get in a fight of this is the best hour of sleep and so on and so forth. So to me, that's one of the things. This is a fix through education, not through medication. Great. Um, yeah, a lot of information here. I'm hoping you're appreciating this, people. It's, there's so many ways we can help people come to see us. Um, I thought of something really. Oh, even now, it's bringing me back to something I mentioned in the in the introduction. In the UK now, we've recently, well, about when was it? Three weeks ago, we had the daylight saving. We've kind of put our clocks, changed it. And I've noticed now it's so bright in the evenings. And I've got a six-year-old and a four-year-old, and of course, they're still having to go to bed at seven o'clock. But it's so bright, so I'm purposely from half past five turning lights off I'm dimming things I'm setting mood lighting you know just to make sure that they're still getting that natural decline and that kind of 
lowering of temperature and everything so they are tired otherwise obviously they're just gonna be wide awake and not ready to go to sleep so the change in and do you notice that with athletes as well does it kind of cause a stir the higher up you get in terms of performance when we do suddenly chuck an hour on in summer yeah so here in calgary uh with daylight saving time uh around june it will still be uh bright outside at 11 p.m because we are so up north uh so during winter time i have different type of sleep complaint compared to summertime and those who pay the price for daylight saving time are kids because they don't have a 11 p.m bedtime they have a 7 8 9 p.m bedtime but it's completely bright outside they could still play be playing baseball or football uh, easily but because of daylight saving time they shouldn't be allowed to do this we need that light in the morning the more light we get in the evening the more difficulty we have to put children uh, in bed because they are uh, they are hyper aroused by that light exposure. So this is to me the worst case scenario is being on daylight saving time permanently, mm. which is would be disastrous. Which is what yeah. governments and kind of the economics are kind of arguing for, isn't it? Kind of well, because there is an economic uh, there's an economic argument behind that. So more light in the evening means more uh, patio time, means uh, more uh, yeah, <laughs> bar and yeah. alcohol time, and later uh, golf time, and so on and so forth. So this is the economic talking. But ultimately, from a health per- perspective, maybe not the best case scenario. Mm. It's okay because governments all over the world listen to scientists. It's been proven with COVID. It's fine. We'll have no problem at all. Um, I'm sure he said ironically. Right. We've got some great questions here um, have come up. So let me um, forget about what I want to ask and go to uh, great question. Um, actually, I want to go to, yeah, let's do this. Nikki Mansfield, let's put it up on the screen. Nikki Mansfield says, is sleep deprivation really the only way to increase deep sleep? Could meditation and mindfulness practices keep us to be more likely to reach that deep stage four? That's brilliant question. Yeah. Uh, what about those? Sort ultimately, of we could. We could. So if you are faced with a, uh, a struggling athlete uh, with a massive anxiety and never reaches that deep stage of sleep stage three, uh, definitely. I was joking, of course, with the I need to deprive you. That will be the easiest way. But introducing meditation and mindfulness practice, if the athlete is responding to it, most definitely it's a free habit. It's a free behavior. And it's a very good one that it would be a tool for life. Uh, if they are traveling for competition uh, internationally and they are in a uh, foreign environment, then meditation and mindfulness could help reset them and protect their sleep. There was one thing I was reading there, it's on my mind recently, and it was, I can't remember who it was, but it was making a quite clear distinction between being relaxed and not stressed and then actually going to sleep. And it's putting kind of a crowbar difference that all of these mindfulness techniques will chill us out. But if our body's not going through that melatonin release and the whole kind of like we're depriving the adenosine receptors and all that, then it's not going to make any difference if we're relaxed. We're still not going to sleep. So does it depend on what the reason is the athlete can't sleep? If it's anxiousness, then maybe it's helping. But if it's something else. If it is something else, yeah, definitely you're not hammering the right nail. But Mm -hmm. uh, to me, it's having uh, more than one tool in your toolbox. So Mm -hmm. the athlete will go through a uh, array of difficulties uh, such as the blues, uh, of a poor uh, performance, uh, depression, 
symptom like anxiety symptom like uh, so for every little issue he may face or she may face she know which one to pick up out of her toolbox and you're right saying that relaxation does not necessarily mean sleepiness but on the other end if you're not relaxed it will be harder for your brain to actually start initiating sleep because absence of relaxation may mean that you are in bed too early or you're doing detrimental uh, behavior uh, around your bedtime so incorporating these meditation and mindfulness practices could help you set that routine bedtime. I've definitely um it was just talking with Amy I guess next week Dr. Amy Bender I found I find that having different techniques kind of meditative approach helps if you're waking when these people um, I wake up during the night and it's that moment where it's like are you going to stay awake for an hour and a half now getting stressed out or are you going to be able to use a mindful technique to go back to sleep again? So I think that's when those techniques can really help, can't it, to help you get back to yeah, sleep? They well. Yeah, they can. They can, absolutely. So to me, I call that. So it's normal to wake up first in the middle of the night. So everyone needs to understand that. So whatever the awakening may be from, a uh, bathroom, a cramp, a uh, nightmare, whatever it may be, noise. Uh, if you wake up after four hours of sleep, it is to be anticipated that you will not initiate sleep within that 15 minute that you did at the first onset. So you will slowly go in that transition state. You know that transition state where you know you're not asleep, but you know you're not awake and your brain is wandering. My point on this is enjoy it. Your brain is going places and you're almost high free. So just go with the flow and it, you are in a transitional state. You will go back to sleep. Stressing about the fact that you're not falling asleep as fast as you used to, which is completely normal, is the detrimental way of thinking. I should be back asleep within that 15 minutes. Well, wait a minute. You just slept for four hours. So how should you be back asleep within that 15 minutes that you did when you were not sleeping for that 16 hours? So that's just unrealistic. So putting back into perspective. And then if you have a lot of struggle, definitely the meditation and mindfulness practice could become handy at that time. Great answer. Great question, Nikki. Thank you for that. Uh, Becky's followed up a question here. Becky says, let me put it up on the screen. Uh, Becky says, I'm curious about athletes that live in places like Northern Finland. Well, I'm going in two weeks time. Really looking forward to that. That have a larger exposure to darkness and how this affects their sleep habits and health. Yeah, how do they survive? <laughs> a good question. So I haven't worked with a uh, athlete from Finland, uh, Norton, but we all know their reality. Uh, so I would assume that they are professional with working with these little tools here. So bright light exposure, uh, which are 10,000 lux. I would assume that they're uh, on the dot when, when, when the clock hit eight in the morning. They are trying to expose themselves to light as much as they can. The same way, basically, we are doing here in Calgary when it's uh, bright outside until 11. We're trying to shield ourselves from light, whereas them, they will try to expose their, themselves to light. Uh, is that as efficient, efficient as the natural light? Again, I doubt it, but that's the best they can do. They will not change the uh, way the sun rotates around the world. Mm-hmm um olivia walsh was was very big on the light she's a big fan of using light and it seems to be such a simple tool if you do it the right way whether it's more in the morning or less at night time it's a real low-hanging fruit that people can work with so yeah i imagine that we'll have to find somebody from northern finland becky and see what they do um i imagine they're yeah they're probably quite experts in, in managing in that way um thank you great question becky um nikki has a question that i wanted to ask as well about 
banking hours, I've, I've seemed to find different beliefs or suggestions whether banking hours works or so I'm interested in your reply to this. So Nikki says, do the extra hours banked have an expiry period? E.g. if I slept an extra hour each day for two weeks while on holiday, would all 14 hours be available for me to use, inverted commas, when I go back to work afterwards? Uh, the sleep bank to me is to counteract the I'm always under sleep that I need to catch up on sleep. So instead of approaching sleep that way, it's more of if you're able to bank your sleep, you will inevitably face a poor night during your week. So if you're already sleep deprived or sleep restricted, that poor night will just exacerbate its consequences. Whereas if you are sleep banking, that poor night will have futile consequences on your behavior the following day. The way I explain that to athletes is when you will go to the Olympic, the, first, the last night or the night before your competition, assume that you will not sleep as usual. You will have a shorter night most likely. But if we have banked your sleep for weeks and weeks out before, that poor night will be less detrimental than if we did not pay attention to your sleep bank. So to me, sleep is an investment a long-term investment instead of, oh, I can sacrifice an hour here and there everywhere, every week. So changing that paradigm of how we see sleep is important. And then it just normalizes also these poor nights. Having seven good nights out of seven on a weekly basis is straight up lying. Nobody has that. So having that bank system on your side will help you go through these little uh, suboptimal nights. Great answer. I hope that's helped, uh, Nikki. Um, and if you have got two weeks of holiday coming up, then yeah, great. Use it. Bank those hours. How lovely. Um, right. I'm conscious that it's three minutes to nine now. There's so much more that I could obviously have asked you about and, and had you share your experience with. Uh, but ultimately, though, hopefully there's, a, there's an awful lot of information there. Um, we wanted to ask about blah, 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 blah. Oh, I didn't mention that. But time has beaten us. So... All of this is about the person coming through our door, um, maybe with pain, maybe with um, uh, performance, lack of performance, they're plateauing or something, and we're, they've come to us for help. Um, what are some of the, we've already kind of mentioned, but in summary, what are kind of the top tips that we should be looking out for if an athlete does come to us with some kind of uh, performance issues? Um, we've mentioned maybe giving them a questionnaire or something, but what are the kind of the top five which could help us highlight whether um, some kind of education could help and indeed how can we educate them the top five uh, ultimately anyone that works with athletes depending on the relationship you have your, with your athlete a simple how you doing today will go a long way in 2022 that opens the door to uh, our refresh are you how good do you, do you feel uh, any pain lately you're dealing with athletes everyone has aching but they can make a difference between i'm sore i'm achy or i'm injured uh how's how's life how's work how's school now you're looking into that mental health well-being so only by these very quick question you you've assessed pain you've assessed their sleep you've assessed their mental health uh well-being and that can give you a wide uh, scope of how they're doing and if you feel and you've worked with a lot of patients and a lot of athletes to know which flag to actually pinpoint. So if your athlete is mentioning, well, my hamstring is always bugging me. Uh, school is all right. Work is all right. Family is good. Uh, there's not much to go on the uh, 
mental health state. So you always go after what's the most obvious, as you mentioned, bringing fruit. So he disclosed something about achy, soreness, injury-like, you go there. If it's more on the sleep, I'm always tired, you go on that. If it's about, well, not that great at home, not that great with the kids, not that great with wife, husband, uh, work, sport-related, and you feel it's a mental health uh, or mental well-being issue, then you uh, refer to a family doc. So it's you. we keep it simple when it comes to uh, addressing the athlete. It's not always about the data. So I don't, I'm not giving my athletes always these questionnaires. I do periodically, so monthly, but on, other than that, every time I see an athlete, there's this question. I'm assessing it, but subjectively through our discussion. And this is how we build the relationship. It's not through a paper, it's through human face-to-face and how do you do it? And that will go a long way. It seems to be a common theme, something definitely I've picked up from, from the hour of the pleasure of spending with you tonight is, yeah, working with a person, not making, expecting huge changes at first, just asking them the simple questions and extracting information in a really kind of context-based way. Yeah, all makes great sense. Um, and also just in summary then, watching out maybe for too much dependence on wearables, which we've talked about tonight, that could be a factor, which I think particularly with runners I know, if they're not checking out their latest run with Garmin and stuff, and easily just translate over to the sleep as well. Um, so that's something to look out for. Um, knowing their chronotype is something we've mentioned as well. That's interesting. Just not trying to force something if it doesn't need to be that way. Or if it does need to be that way, then looking at how you could play around with changing factors like light. And um, that was a good one as well. Um, oh, we didn't have time to talk about coffee either. But that's a whole nother issue as well, isn't it? Um, it is. You know what? Because there is so much to cover, I'm, I'm willing to do a part two, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I think we're going to have to do a part two, you know. I mean, my my when I agreed to do the, or when I jumped at the chance of doing the five-week study with Amy and Cerebra, I was trying to think out, because I'm a bit of a geek, obviously, and I was like, I can't just give five, night, five weeks or 35 nights of data. I want to put something in there as well. So I did the first week. I, I drink a lot of coffee. I've had to because I'm a night owl, and I've just that's how I get by um until now where i understand now sleep wonderfully but i mean so for me it was a case of right let's do a week of taking data with my normal four shots a day of of normally a flat white or maybe a quartile depending on where i'm buying it and then i cut it out i just went cold turkey so we had two weeks of getting out the system then there was a further two weeks of in theory very little caffeine in the system Mm -hmm. so that's going to be hope i was trying to keep all other variables fairly constant to see how much effect there was on the different stages of sleep by taking caffeine out. But um, as we will see next um, next week, yeah, it wasn't that, it's not that simple keeping everything else consistent because life gets in the way, doesn't it? Exactly, um, it's knowing your boundaries, it's flexible. Especially in a world pandemic when the rest of your family is <laughs> getting COVID, when it's half term and kids are suddenly at home all day long instead of at school, yeah. that was interesting. Um, so yeah, and that was a big take home as well. And something which you reminded me is you're working with humans with lives and you can't dictate what they've got to do without asking them how the veils are changing and being flexible. So yeah, brilliant. Thank you so much, um, Jonathan. Real pleasure spending time with you and uh, it's lovely. I'll take that offer of a part two. Um, check your emails. I'll give you a date in time. That'd be great. Um, Thank you for having me.
Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. And I was serious about that take too. And just a quick note for Becky for your last question. There's no such thing as getting too much sleep. We are in a sleep deprived society. So let's, let's get that sleep in. You are not getting too much. Trust me. So until next time, it was a, pres a, a pleasure. From the horse's mouth. I think Olivia mentioned that um, in a few months' time, the event, the kind of stuff you're doing at the moment, maybe you'll have some results coming through. So it might be interesting to coincide yeah, with that maybe. to see, hear what you've all been up to. Right. Thank you so much again, Jonathan. If you stick around, I just want to say thank you to you personally once I've closed down the live lounge. Thank you, everyone, for joining us live. Really appreciate it. I know in this day and age, doing something live is just unheard of. Nothing we watch on live TV. Do they even still do that anymore? It's all just pause and play, isn't it? So... I really it's it's flattering and really um, keeps me going to think that you guys do give up your time to join us live it's great and um, we're keeping the world alive um if you have you listen to the podcast because i do try and get these out especially this month the day afterwards and you do want to join us live because um, you've enjoyed the interaction that you've heard and it's a chance to fire questions at the guests then the final week of our sleep awareness month will be next week i'm actually going to be in finland so i'm touching wood all the time just hoping the internet connection everything's fine and it will be with Dr. Amy, Dr. Amy Bender, who is responsible for this whole Sleep Awareness Month because she got me into it for being a guest back in August last year. That's what made me do the sleep study. Um, and, and that's where we are now. So the results of that sleep study using the in-home polysomnogram, which was measuring brain waves. So we have that interesting comparable with the information from that compared to your Garmin and Fitbit and our ring and that sort of stuff. So it should be a great show um and it will be happening at 8 p.m gmt plus one uh next tuesday which will be the 26th if you fancy staying up for that but please don't sleep deprive yourself if it doesn't fit into your time zone i don't want to be responsible for that um if you can't then that's why we do it that's why we download it as a podcast um so yeah do please um listen and enjoy and leave a rating and review on your favorite podcast app so on behalf of myself and jonathan thank you very much again jonathan and hopefully we'll see some of you next Tuesday. Take care of yourselves. You're listening to the Sports Therapy Association podcast, putting evidence back into soft tissue therapy.